Welcome to the Garrett Betancourt podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about Blood and Oak, my epic high seas adventure story, and how I came up with the idea for the quest of John Sullivan and his friends. When his family is kidnapped and sold into slavery by the Barbary pirates, a daring young Navy officer embarks on a suicidal quest to rescue his family and take his revenge. It's an intense, emotional story full of romance, highs and lows, and I hope uh, a message that is as uplifting to you as all the other great naval heroes of, of history. So let's get into it and talk about how I came up with the idea. I'll start with talking about Blood and Oak and what this story is and really why I created it. You know, Blood and Oak is a story about a young sailor who joins the Navy in a desperate bid to free his mother and sister from their enslavement at the hands of the Barbary pirates. Yeah, this is in the early days of America when it was a young country and he is a trained sailor who's learned the sword and his goal is to launch a one-man suicide mission to save his family. It's a high-stakes gamble. No one believes he'll succeed. His only hope, his only place to place his faith is in himself. John Sullivan is the hero of the series. So why did I create this story? Um, what is Blood and Oak really about and what does it mean to me? Um, at its core, Blood and Oak is the quintessential adventure story. You know, it's very much inspired by stories like The Count of Monte Cristo about a man in revolutionary France wrongly accused by, by his friend of treason and he winds up going to prison and ultimately gets a chance with a huge fortune to wage a war of revenge against those who betrayed him. You know, The Three Musketeers, a great story about um, these dedicated soldiers who've lost their purpose in life, but have a chance to reclaim it when they must protect the king. Um, you know, Zorro, classic Pulp Fiction hero. He was a masked crusader uh, protecting people who are oppressed and who had no one to help them against the tyrannical nobles of, of Spain that were essentially uh, keeping them as slaves uh, to an aristocracy that was abusive and <clears throat> excruciating to live under. So <clears throat> why do I bring up these stories? Because for me, one of the most classic kinds of adventure story is the high seas hero. You know, people remember the great pirate stories, the great stories of the, the Errol Flynn films in which he's swashbuckling on the deck of a tall ship. And there really is a romance and a beauty to the real history of the Age of Fighting Sail. And I've always been a great fan of characters like Horatio Hornblower and Jack Aubrey of the the most classic seafaring novels. So John Sullivan is, in my view, the, he is uh, the American swashbuckling adventure hero. And that is, that is the 
theme of his story, and that is the motif. Um, but they're really, you know, this is a project I have so much passion for. And so what I'd like to talk about is why. Why, why a nautical hero in the 19th century? You know, why, why tall ships in the age of sail? Why is this such a powerful story? Well, to tell you that, I have to tell you a little bit about my life. You know, I, I've actually been trying to answer that question myself. One thing, one reason I'm even here doing this podcast is um, I've been, I have been challenged to publish every single day for the next 365 days. I'm doing something called the One Funnel Away Challenge, um, which is through a site called ClickFunnels, um, run by Russell Brunson, and it's been very inspiring and very exciting. And it's really one of the most interesting things I'm learning is about communicating. And that I have to do it. So I'd like to talk today about how I got the idea for swashbuckling sailor John Sullivan's quest and the idea of Blood and Oak. You know, Blood and Oak is the story of a man who, after a lucky escape from Barbary slavery, John Sullivan embarks on a suicidal quest to rescue his family and take revenge. So why did I write this story? Well, that's actually a really hard question to answer. And it's a question that I have been trying. Um, I've been working hard and journaling a lot and thinking a lot about over the last few days. My goal is to make this project as big and epic and grand as possible. And it's resulted in me doing a lot of soul searching. You know, I published this book and it's been an incredibly rewarding achievement, both this book and the second book, Wolves Will Eat. But where I'm left is now, how do I sell it? So the purpose of this podcast is really to bring you along with me on the journey. Um, I'm pretty nervous to do this. Uh, I, I'm very much a perfectionist at heart. And like many artists, I torture myself with the inner critic and, uh, and those fears and doubts that hold us back. But I'm making a decision today to be free of those fear and doubts. And I invite you, as you listen to this podcast, to do the same in your own life. And so here it is, for better or worse, my story. I guess the simplest way to put it is I have in the past for a long time felt like a failure and a disappointment to the people who I love and care about. And frankly, most importantly, to myself. Um, you know, something like probably about six years ago now, um, what I would consider one of the worst points and lowest points in my life. I was about 80 or 90 pounds heavier, um, maybe a little less than that. Um, I think at, at my head, I, after college, I gained a lot of weight and uh, I was drinking a lot. Um, I was dealing with a lot of personal depression issues and uh, I dropped out of college. Um, at University of California, Santa Barbara. 
And that's not something that's been easy to talk about for me, but I'm talking about it with you now because it, it's time. It's time to just be real with my story. You know, the I think one of the most difficult things in my life has been a feeling like I'm not enough and I'm not good enough. And one of the ways I have attempted, you know, I was, I was very introverted in my early years in high school. I struggled with getting bullied a lot in school. And one of the ways that I began to deal with that was to seek approval and validation from others. And so I sort of defined every level of my success by the number of friends I had, um, what I was known for, all of those things. And that led me down a dark path of, you know, drinking and depression. And I essentially spent my 20s gaining weight and being very unhappy. And uh, something like six years ago, I really started to make a lot of positive changes in my life. And since then, you know, I've, I've, I've been pretty successful in work. I've lost over 70 pounds. I published these two books. Um, you know, those are just some of the highlights, but I've been doing a lot of personal development growth. But I want to take you back to before all of that. So about 10 years ago, I was just living on going from one couch to the next, living with family members. You know, I would do a job, get tired of it. You know, I would start drinking too much and I'd wind up screwing it up and losing the job. And then pretty soon I have bills I can't pay, debts, you know, that I that are racking up. I started ignoring all of my cell phone calls because they were all debt collectors. I remember being just racked with this soul-crushing guilt about how I was using my family uh, in order to have a place to stay, to borrow money, um, constantly borrowing money, and frankly, to have a place to drink. And I often had to hide my drinking because my family saw that it was getting out of control and were quite justly insisting that if I wanted to benefit from their help, I needed to change that behavior. And so I made certain efforts to do that, but really mostly what I did is I just went into hiding and uh, played the part of a responsible guy. In my own head, I felt justified. You know, I felt like their attitudes about my drinking were overly protective and overly critical. And of course, I was in that mindset of I'm an adult and I can do what I want. As long as I'm paying the bills, it's none of their business. So, um, but I was deeply unhappy. And after a series of jobs I hated and roommates, you know, at this point, I hadn't been writing. Uh, writing is something I've always loved to do, but I hadn't been doing it at this time, and I didn't think of myself as a writer at that time, and because I hadn't been. And what was what I was doing was just blowing with the wind, and uh, I eventually landed in Los Angeles, of all places, where I had some friends offering me a place to say to stay, and that really appealed to me because you know it was a fresh start. And I wanted that very much. And, you know, that was sort of the beginning of my journey back. But it was it was really difficult. You know, I was struggling with things that I don't think I was even consciously in touch with. 
you know, why was I drinking so much? Why was I so desperate for the approval and validation of others? You know, why was it, you know, I would feel that if any of my friends disapproved of me, it was a reflection of me. I felt that if people had an attitude about me, it was a reflection on my character that I wasn't enough and I couldn't prove myself to people. And if I really had to dig deep and ask myself where that was coming from, um, I would have to say that it came from probably a variety of things. You know, I come from, I'm a child of divorce and there's, you know, there was a lot of uh, difficulties involved in that because I had a father with anger issues and I had a a mother with moving on issues, and it created sort of a witch's brew of that of uh, really my my difficulty in processing anger and grief and those sorts of things. But there was something else going on, which was also I was closeted about my sexuality, being a bisexual. Um, even to this day, that's difficult for me to talk openly about. It feels sort of strange to me. Um, feels like something that I don't know people really want to know or ask to know. But it doesn't matter because I'm sharing it with you because it's the truth. And I wasn't living my truth and I wasn't being open and honest about who I was. And honestly, I felt a great deal of shame, uh, you know rightly or wrongly, rationally or irrationally. It's just how I felt. And so while I was dealing with all of this, you know, there were sort of, there were sort of these characters in my head, these memes. Um, They were the heroic archetypes, you know, the characters I loved in stage and screen, you know, Zorro, the dashing rogue protecting the downtrodden, the Count of Monte Cristo, a fast, you know, an adventurer about a man who's betrayed by his best friend, and he gets the opportunity to learn to fight and then take revenge. Um, You know, the Three Musketeers, this story about duty and uh, washed up soldiers getting their second chance to protect the life of the king. You know, these are stories were very much in my consciousness all through my life. I've always loved stories. And when I was writing, that was the kind of thing I wanted to write about. And I've very much always loved the hero's journey. And I've always loved a complicated hero's journey. And one of the most powerful journeys for me has always been, you know, the the young man setting out to make his life better, or, you know, obviously that's more relatable to me, but also the young woman setting out to make her life better, to accomplish a quest, to become more than she started out as, you know, these characters that go on this journey are very powerful. And one of my favorites is the nautical hero, the naval hero, the young officer in a Navy, could be a Navy at sea, could be a Navy in space, um, but the young officer working to prove himself. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be specifically biased against any gender, but because we're talking about me and what I relate to, I'm going to refer to the young man uh, wanting to rise through the ranks. 
So just know that that's the reason why, um, because I'm quite uh, quite a bit in love with the idea of exploring the adventures of young women rising through the ranks too, as you will see uh, in much of my writing. For me, that relationship between a young man trying to prove himself and his leader, who is a mentor, maybe a good one, maybe a bad one, and then also his his peers, the people that depend on him and his example, his um, his subordinates, those people he leads, that is a powerful journey to me. And one of the best characters that exemplifies this is Horatio Hornblower. When you think of a classic dashing hero, you know, there's a lot of more obvious ones I could pick, um, such as Luke Skywalker or the Count of Monte Cristo or the Three Musketeers or Zorro or Batman for that matter. Um, you know, there's a lot of heroes that fill that archetype that are inspiring. Captain Kirk, definitely a good one. Um, and I could certainly tell you how all of those different characters inspired me, but during this dark time in my life, when I was going through all these things, there was one more than any other that stuck in my mind. A little known Navy officer of the Napoleonic Wars named Horatio Hornblower. What, you don't know who that is? I'm shocked. Uh, there's a great moment in the first book, Mr. Midshipman Hornblower, when he's just joined the Navy and he's very timid and afraid, and he comes aboard the ship and he introduces himself and he says, uh, my name is Horatio Hornblower, midshipman. And the sailor says, how very unfortunate for you. It's, uh, that pretty well sums up probably the look I'm getting from most of you right now. But why does this character mean so much to me? Horatio Hornblower is this shy kind of somewhat nerdy, bookish 17-year-old uh, who joins the Navy during the late 1790s um, when Napoleon is first uh, rising to power. The French Revolution is happening, and then later Napoleon is rising to power. And he just wants to have a he wants to have a place in the world where he fits, and the Navy is probably, he thinks, the worst choice, and he's a character that always doubts himself, and he suffers from terrible bullying uh, from other, from a just malevolent officer on the ship, and he goes through a lot of trials, but what's great about his story is he rises through the ranks, and he earns his stripes, and he learns how to become a leader. And I, I think one of the best ways I can sum up where it just inspired me was in the first episode, uh, They there, there are the books, which are great, and the A&E series, which adapted them really well. The, there's seri a limited series of films. And, uh, you know, in there's a character in the film that he becomes close friends with, and his name is Archie. And he's one of the other midshipmen on the ship. And he is a good guy and... He does his best, but he suffers from epilepsy, which, you know, the characters in the story, you know, at this time, epilepsy, not much was known about it. They just call it fits. Um, 
And what seems to trigger these epileptic fits that Archie has is when Midshipman Simpson, who is a malicious, uh, awful, brutish kind of bully, uh, who basically terrorizes all of them, constantly does things to screw with them, um, such as waking them up every half hour so they can never get good sleep. And the absolute terror of living under this bully is what drives, uh, you know, Archie to have these fits. Horatio Hornblower, you know, he himself is dealing with the misery of Simpson, this bully. And he often, at first, he does try to stand up for himself and for his other crew. But Simpson is um, a good fighter and he's just a really scary guy. And he beats them into submission and he threatens them. And there, there's a chain of command that just doesn't do anything about it. And it's just an awful situation. And so what does Hornblower ultimately do? Well, ultimately he reaches a point where he's had enough and he challenges him to a duel, which is sort of crazy, but he's doing it not only to stand up for himself and to be free of Simpson, but to free his friends from this monster. Um, so I'll tell you more about that in a little bit, but that was a story that resonated with me because I was bullied a lot in high school and Hornblower, um, like many of these other characters, they are people that overcome their own limitations. They're people that triumph over evil, but not, not just because they triumph over someone like a bully, but because they triumph over their own fears and their own limitations and they become something more, you know? Luke Skywalker learns to use the Force and is able to stand up to Darth Vader, um, but he has to become someone else to do that. So, you know, these archetypes like Hornblower and, of course, the lesser-known Luke Skywalker have been circulating in my head since I was a kid. I decided to write Blood and Oak because, you know, at the time, I had a few desires. You know, I... I had lost some weight. Um, I finally had my own apartment. I had a job that was stable. And I just really wanted to be successful. And I wanted to have a job I didn't hate anymore. I wanted to be a provider for my family and friends. And one day, hopefully, you know, my children, because I'd, I'd like to have children someday. I wanted to give back to the people who'd given me so much and taken care of me when I was drifting from couch to couch. Um, and I guess I also kind of wanted a life of adventure. And I feel like, you know, when your work becomes the thing you love, that's when your life truly is an adventure. But I think that the really deeper thing that I wanted was I wanted to prove to everyone who knew me, friends, family, acquaintances, roommates, myself, you know, but, most, but a lot of the people around me who were judging me, I think pretty harshly sometimes fairly, sometimes not, and maybe it doesn't even matter. It just matters that I was constantly under a sort of microscope of, of, a, of one kind or another from almost everyone who knew me. And I think it's that microscope you get when people wonder when the next time you're going to screw up is. You know, when is the next time that I'm going to break a promise or fail to live up to something I said I would do? And I wanted to prove that all my past mistakes, those weren't the real me. 
you know? And on some level, I wanted to, I wanted to be that hero, the one that transformed physically, mentally, spiritually. I wanted to prove that I was good enough. I mean, deep down, I think I still had that. I was still feeling as though, even though I had a job and I'd lost weight and I was doing better, I was still that overweight loser, uh, that that kid that was bullied in school, ashamed <clears throat> about my sexuality and just those feelings of being afraid to be the real me. And, you know, this was, this was the crossroads for me because I knew I wasn't happy in the corporate world. I knew I wasn't happy with where I was and what I was doing. And so I had a decision to make, you know, what do I do? You know, I've, I've gotten a little stability under my feet. I'm on my feet. I'm, I'm succeeding to an extent, but I'm still treading water. I'm still living hand to mouth. You know, what, what am I going to be? And I, I thought about a couple different things. I could go back to school and finish my degree. You know, my degree was in film studies. You know, what am I going to do with that? And that was a thought going through my head. Um, you know, there's everyone always says, just get your bachelor's degree. It's worth having. But at a certain point, it's like, is it worth the effort, the time, the money? What would I actually get out of it? And then the next thought was I could get a different degree. I could start something totally new from scratch. This time, instead of film studies, an artistic degree, which I didn't really have any particular use for, even if I wanted uh, to pursue film, I could get something else like a MBA, you know, become really good at business. Then I thought, do I really want to live my life in the corporate world, climbing the corporate ladder? Frankly, I couldn't think of anything more dismal. And so I didn't like that idea. I did love fitness and exercise and I was getting into that and I still am into that. And it is a great passion of mine. And I thought I could become a personal trainer and that was a pretty appealing idea. I certainly believed I could, but you know, there was another consideration, another thing in my mind that had always been there, always been nagging and that was my writing. You know, ever since I was a little kid, I was writing stories and writing picture books and poems and things like that. I wrote a novel for my high school senior project about pirates at sea. And my stories always revolved around these kinds of heroes who defended the innocent and defended what they believed in. And I realized that that was absolutely in me. I still have all these stories circulating in my head. I was thinking at the time, and I don't know what to do with them. Um, I had a couple of novels I'd been dabbling on. One was a fantasy novel about a warrior who discovers an ancient martial art. And another one, which was about um, sort of a cyberpunk group of superheroes who fly around on a dazzling um, aircraft that I referred to as an airship, right? And I had these, and these were things I've been tinkering with since high school and never really got any real momentum, never really finished anything. And I decided to call a friend and ask for his input. You know, I decided I wanted to be a writer, but what do I write? So I asked him, which of these stories uh, should I should I do? 
So my friend uh, gave me an interesting challenge. He said, you know, I think you should abandon any idea you've had for longer than a year and just come up with something totally new. I think you should write a story. You've just, it's totally fresh and original and just forget about the other things you've been worrying about. So I said, well, we're not friends anymore and hung up the phone. But actually, not really. Um, what I what I did is I decided to make it a thought experiment. My decision was I'm not really going to abandon these stories I care so much about, but I'm interested in this idea. What if I could come up with something new? And so I spent the next three weeks really thinking about it and asking myself, what story could I tell? And every idea that came to me was something old, something I'd already tried, uh, something I'd already thought of. I mean, I began to feel like the most unoriginal writer in the world because I just couldn't come up with a new idea that, that I liked. And then one day I'm on the lake uh, with family, just floating around. Um, and at the outdoors has always been a great inspiration to me. And, and then it just hit me. You know, I thought of these characters at sea that I had always loved so much. And I thought of you know, the journey of a naval hero rising through the ranks and proving himself and becoming a great leader and, and becoming someone that others consider a hero. And I thought of how much I loved the sword fighting pirates versus sailors era of the Barbary Wars in American history. It was a, it was just a great passage in history that's long forgotten in which we were a nation being bullied by these pirates who were attacking our ships and demanding, enslaving our sailors and demanding ransoms to get them back. And, you know, the, the, here we had just fought a revolution to be free. And here, once again, we were fighting another bully. And this time, you know, no, no one to help us. And so as a country, we built six frigates and sent them to fight this war. And so I had this idea, I, a vision of a character came to me, a captain named John Sullivan, who had fought in these wars and had earned his stripes fighting the Barbary pirates. But he had a kind of a darkness to him, um, you know, a dark past, and he... He was a man that was heroic and bold and dashing and a great inspiration to those he led, but he was also a man who sometimes went too far in the name of victory. A man who can never admit defeat, who can never surrender, and that is both his greatest strength and his greatest weakness. And so I went back to my friend and I told him this idea, and he came back with a follow-up question. He said, why is this character like this? Why is he never willing to surrender? And I, that was a question I had to answer. So I went back to the drawing board and uh, ultimately I realized I had to tell the story of John Sullivan fighting in the Barbary War. And that is what led to Blood and Oak. The career path of an artist is certainly never going to be an easy one.
And my decision was, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to create these stories. And what really made the decision for me was the answer to this question. I have these stories within me all the time. And they are beautiful, amazing books and films that I want other people to read and see and experience as I experience them. But in order to do that, I have to get them out of my head. So can I live with having these stories in my head and nowhere else? Can I live with these stories locked inside me for my whole life while I do something else? And my answer to that question was, no, I really can't. And that's how I know that this was, this is the path for me. So, so now that I had my decision, I had my idea for what to write. I had my commitment that I'm going to be a writer. Um, you know, the next thing that I was faced with was, and I had the vision of this character. The next thing I'm faced with is how do I do it? You know, where, how am I going to get this book written while I still meet my other commitments? So I, I made it, a, I made a plan, you know, my book is going to be my second job, my night school. A lot of people I knew were doing that, you know, they're taking online classes after work. Um, if I were going to get an MBA, that's what I'd be doing. So I looked at it as I'm going to write and I'm going to work toward publishing this book and it's going to be my second job. And that's essentially what I treated it as. I started, you know, my friend who had given me the, who had helped me discover this idea. Um, you know, he was at first helping me write, um, stay accountable. We helped each other stay accountable. We would each write about a thousand words a week and we would have to turn those words into each other each week and then critique and reply. And it was just a great process to help me. You know, I, for the first time in my life, I had a total commitment to completing a novel by hook or by crook. And that was so crucial because, you know, it, there's a lot of distractions in life and it's, it's not easy to be the only person that you're really accountable to, to get something done. So that was my total commitment. You know, and as I'm writing this story, I immediately thought back to Horatio Hornblower and all of the qualities I loved about this hero. And, in, and I let that inform and guide me in my creation of John Sullivan. And there are certainly many other, you know, books, movies, heroes that have influenced me. You know, John Sullivan is very much a character meant to be uh, this kind of hero that inspires me. And I think what most inspired me about Horatio Hornblower was how there are these little moments in his story where he looks the other way when a crew member is doing something bad in order to give them a second chance to prove themselves. There's this little scene where he comes, up, he comes upon a group of troublemakers that are in his division on the ship, Stiles, Matthews, and Aldroyd. And Stiles has these little bits of plaster on his face, and he, he claims it's boils. And it's clear that Stiles and the others do not respect Horatio Hornblower. He's the 17-year-old officer in training. Um, in those days, it was, it was very difficult for a young officer in training to get the respect of the men if he didn't have a lot of backup from the upper chain of command. So these guys pretty much laugh and chuckle at him. 
And the captain, Captain Pellew, has, has basically given him this assignment as a test. Get these men to work. Get them whipped into shape. That's your job. And Hornblower, you know, is faced with disappointing the captain and failing this challenge if he can't get these men to respect him. So he watches them carefully, and eventually he discovers that what they've been doing is they have been gambling in the lower decks. And so he follows them down there, and he discovers that what, what they've done is they've created a little ring out of ropes, and they have basically tied Styles' hands behind his back while he is attacking rats. Basically, he's biting and killing rats, and they're betting on how many he can kill in a given amount of time. So Hornblower sneaks up and discovers this scene, and with horror, they suddenly see that Hornblower is there, an officer on the ship, and they immediately become defensive, and they say, we're off duty, and he says, what's going on here? And Stiles immediately tries to challenge Hornblower's authority and tell him, you know, we're off duty, we can do whatever we want, and he immediately threatens them with, you know, what you're doing could have you flogged. And if I go to the lieutenant right now, you'll be in irons and you'll be getting a flogging five minutes later. And that gets him to listen to him. But then he says, now I'm going to give you each a chance to prove yourselves. You're going to clean up this mess. And from now on, I'm going to see you up on decks in the, in this, in the dog watches in this hour of the day. And I'm never going to hear about these filthy games happening again. They're not going to happen again, he said. And I'm giving you this chance to prove yourselves. And and he does. And they and for that's the beginning of his journey to becoming a leader. Because these men start to respect him. You know, he fights a duel against Simpson, the bully who had been attacking him later in the film, and. He actually spares his life when his pistol fails to discharge. And the captain saves his life when Simpson tries to kill Hornblower anyway. Uh, the captain basically snipes him from a good distance with his musket and takes him, takes him out and spares Hornblower's life. So at this point in his journey, he has begun to earn the respect of his captain. He's begun to earn the respect of his men. And Archie, the epileptic midshipman who had been, you know, tormented by Simpson, has witnessed Horatio Hornblower take care of him, protect him, and take out this bully. And essentially, they begin to become friends. They become close friends. And as I'm thinking of all of this, it made me realize that this is the core of who John Sullivan is. He's a friend. He's a man that cares deeply about the people around him, and he'll do anything to protect them. And that definitely formed the basis of who he is. In many ways, I, I kind of imagine that he's the friend I would want to have. You know, if I were Archie on that ship, what man would I want you know, in you know, sharing this duty with me? Who would I want at my side? And definitely John Sullivan would be him. So the writing was going well, um, but then I ran into a snag. My friend who had been helping me stay accountable
quit sending in his entries uh, pretty soon. Um, I wasn't getting any feedback from him on my work, which was challenging because, you know, every writer needs good feedback. You know, I still struggled with a lot of drinking, a lot of heavy drinking. I had self-doubt that was driving me to lazy habits, such as watching Netflix and playing Xbox, you know, considering, can I even do this? And I even had, there were many, many times where I almost abandoned the project and said, you know what, this book isn't turning out the way I thought. Uh, this is a waste of time. It's not going to work. And I wanted to throw in the towel. And the only thing that sort of kept me from doing that was the thought that if there's one valuable thing I can do to be a success in writing right now, it's to finish something. And I realized that it didn't matter if the book was terrible. I had to finish it because that was the victory. Because if I never finished this one, I'd never finish anything. So I had to figure out a way to overcome that. Um, so I realized I was responsible for my own success. And if I didn't have a friend keeping me accountable and reviewing and critiquing my work, then I needed someone else to help me with that. So I overcame some of my introvert introversion and my fear and I joined a writer's group, and I started uh, attending regularly, and that was really scary at first, uh, sharing my work with a group of seven or eight strangers uh, on the first night was not easy. Um, but over time, I started to form great friendships and partnerships with other writers who could help me, which led me to discover other professionals in the industry. I cut back on my drinking. I, you know, I became much more disciplined. I started, you know, practicing habits that would help me avoid the vices. Um, I started staying late at work so that after my shift, I could continue working on my book without the, the temptation of going to watch Netflix or play video games. And, you know, I got to a point after a couple of years of developing it that I needed a change of scenery. I needed lower rent and lower taxes and a better place to, a place where I had more disposable income. So I moved from Los Angeles, which I dearly love and moved to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, which great city, but that was a big transition. I had to leave a lot behind and it was, it was a big, it was a sacrifice. And I have to say, Ultimately, all these changes I made were worth it uh, because after three years of work, I finally did finish John's emotional, powerful, the first half of John's emotional, powerful journey to save his family from the Barbary pirates. And that was book one of Blood and Oak. Um, and then one year after that, I finished the second half of his opening story, which is Wolves Will Eat, uh, book two of Blood and Oak. And those achievements were incredible, and they felt incredible. And they created they created a whole lot of other problems that I will talk about in later podcasts. But it was a long and difficult journey, and it was a journey that helped me find my true path. Um, one of the one of the main problems I faced after it was after the books were done 
is that I lost my best excuse. Um, you know, the book was done and now was the part where, you know, I start selling it and marketing it and finding readers for it and becoming a famous author and living my dreams. And I suddenly realized that, that was a whole other proposition. It's one thing to write a book. It's another thing for people to read it and find it. Um, and I, I was in a pretty dark place for a while after that, because honestly, I felt I wanted to be a writer. I didn't want to be, you know, trying to drive the marketing of my book. It felt like it just isn't nat it isn't natural for me uh, as an introvert. Those, at least as someone who thought of himself as introverted, that was a very difficult thing for me. So for the first time ever, I had to I had to consider that I had been hiding behind this idea that you know when the book is done, then I will figure out how to be successful. So I have spent the last couple of years on that journey, you know, and I've discovered a lot of powerful books and uh, coaching groups that have helped me a great deal. And they've brought me to this point, this point now where I'm sharing my story with you. And for the first time learning to love myself and my work and who I am and embrace who I am and, you know, really begin to share my story and not just the story in my work. You know, one of the things I've always felt, you know, the, they call it being a perfectionist where everything has perfect. So bringing all this to a close, um, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that in this really difficult year, 2020, as I've been struggling with how how to bring my book to the world. Um, it's taken me to some really amazing places. I completed a program called the 30 day sobriety solution um, earlier this year and gave up drinking. I've been sober for seven months and counting. I, you know, have joined a, a coaching program that's been really helping me become the confident and self-accepting man that I want to be. And I, I'm, I'm actually learning to, to take joy and happiness in my achievements. And the most important thing I'm learning is how to love myself, um, how to speak my truth, and not just when I feel safe, you know, speaking my truth at all times. And that is so crucial to writing. One of the beautiful things about fiction is that we speak our truth through characters. You know, characters can, they can speak their truth. And uh, I've, I've gotten very good at honoring the voice of my characters and the beliefs of my characters and having them say the things and do the things in the story that they need to do. And I've been faithful to them, but I haven't been faithful to me. I have censored my story. I have hidden my story. And I have shied away from telling the world about Blood and Oak because of my doubts. You know, it's 
oh, it's about tall wooden ships. Uh, only really nerdy historical buffs like me care about that sort of thing. Uh, who cares about a, a swashbuckling naval hero in the age of, you know, zombie movies and Marvel movies, you know? Is it what, how do you sell a book like this? You know, those are the doubts that have been circulating. And, you know, my ch the challenge I received to do this podcast and to tell this story really is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because the challenge was very simple, but it was incredibly difficult. It was tell your story, not the story you want people to hear, not the story you feel is going to get you what you want, not the story that's going to make you feel safe, your true story, who you really are. And every time I would write it, I'd have to dig a little deeper to find the real truth that frankly I was hiding from myself. And so I'll be telling this story again um, because I know that there's more depth to it that's needed, but what brought me to this point is realizing that I do have a story to tell and it feels great practicing self-acceptance and, and self-love. And I realize that that sounds really, uh, it sounds silly to say, but it is the truth. So, so this journey revealed something to me because I had to answer a very important question. Why John Sullivan? Why did I write this story? Why, of all the stories I could have told, fantasy, sci-fi, steampunk, you know, zombie horror for all I know, why was this the one story I had to tell? And why is it a story that to this day I'm so passionate about? Because I realized that in writing about John Sullivan, I was really writing about my highest aspirations for myself. I was writing a story about a man who overcomes great tragedy and his own darkness to do what's right and to save the people he loves. And to do that, he had to become a better man. And then it just became clear to me as I realized that, that that's the quest I've been on. I've been on the quest to be a better man, to be to be someone who is a protector and a provider and a source of joy and strength to those around me. That has been my quest. And that is why I love these naval heroes so much. This is why I love this tradition of ships and the sea and all the perils and challenges that come with that. Because it sort of comes back to this amazing concluding scene in Horatio Hornblower, you know, in the sixth film, you know, he's been on all these adventures with his friend Archie. They've escaped a Spanish prison together. They've fought French revolutionaries together. They've faced death and battle. And, you know, Archie was there for him when Horatio lost the love of his life. Uh, you know, so many powerful moments. And they have this great, that they fight this great battle with a Spanish fort in the story and they're victorious their ship wins and they win the day and horatio discovers to his horror that archie 
even though he's smiling and triumphant, is hiding the fact that he's been slashed across the belly with a sword and he's in grave danger. And what happens next is a, is a month or so later in the port of Port Royal, Archie is laying on his deathbed and it's clear that he's not going to make it. You know, his wound has become infected and, you know, in the early 1800s, medicine, there wasn't much you could do after that point. So Horatio Hornblower is sitting at the bedside of his best friend, Archie, and he's basically realizing he's about to have to say goodbye. And Archie urges him to go because he doesn't want Horatio to see him like this in his final moments. And he says to Hornblower, well, first, I should say, Hornblower says to him as he's about to leave, he says to Archie, it was an honor to have served with you. And then Archie looks up at him and says, and it was my honor to have known you. And those are his last words to his friend. And to this day, that scene brings me to tears because it was about, it was Archie thanking Horatio Hornblower for always being there and always putting himself on the line for his friends and giving with such a generous heart and standing up to evil and showing others that it could be done. And, and Archie, you know, was, he was this bullied, terrorized, epileptic man who became a great, dashing, heroic Navy officer following the example of his friend. And that is why I had to write the story of John Sullivan, because that is the kind of story that's powerful. John Sullivan is, in many ways, my American Horatio Hornblower, a man who is a true beacon of light and hope to his friends. And in writing him, what I realize now is that I have been writing a story in order to show myself how to be the hero of my own life, how to be the hero of people around me. And that's the power of a great story. A great story uplifts you. A great story gives you an ideal to reach for. And I have just been a man possessed with this strange belief all my life. And I haven't always been consciously aware of it, but I've always had this belief that when I was watching those movies with the most daring and outlandish heroes you can imagine, there was some part of me that always believed I could have that journey. I could do that. Anyone could do that. Anyone could become the hero of their life. And I do believe that. I believe it for me, and I believe it for you. And I believe you can be the hero of your own life. And one of the reasons that we love these stories, one of the reasons that we gravitate towards an adventure story like Blood and Oak or superhero stories or any other is we love it's it's not the it's not the moment when the villain is beaten or the moment when the people are saved or any of that it's or the battle won that's not actually why we're watching we're watching for that moment 
when the hero looks back and realizes who he or she has become, what she has accomplished, what he has learned to do that he didn't know how to do, and the better person they are for it. Because that's what we want for ourselves. We want to find in ourselves that power to be more than we are, to exceed our limitations, to see our wildest dreams come true. We want that example to reach for, because if we don't have a course set ahead of us, then we don't know where we're going. Great characters, great heroes, great stories, they give us that course. They give us that goal to reach for. So that's what Blood and Oak means to me, and that's what John Sullivan is all about for me. And and I wrote him as much for you as I did for myself, because I want you to have that experience that I've always had with great nautical heroes. And uh, I look forward to talking with you more about it. So thank you for listening, if you've listened this far. And here's to more adventures on the high seas. Fair winds and foulies, my dear listeners.